welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Genesis 1.28 says, Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. How shall we treat sexual intimacy and marriage if we believe that children are blessings from God? How shall we treat sexual intimacy and marriage if we believe that children are inconveniences to be avoided? Who decides what a blessing is and what is not? Families recently had the privilege of learning from Reverend Rolf Preuss at the Wittenberg Academy Family Retreat. Enjoy here, Plenary Session 3. Let's just get right into it, the topic uh, for this third session is uh, God made and blesses marriage. <clears throat> Genesis 1, uh, verse 28, then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. First, we learn what God did. Then we learn what God says about what he did. First, God made man, male and female, in his image. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In this first chapter of Genesis, God sets before us the first blessing of marriage. Children, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Children are blessings from God. It says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. It does not say, God cursed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Children are objectively blessings from God. Sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is also a blessing from God. God's the one who made man male and female. So he knows what a man and a woman must do if they are to be fruitful and multiply. And he approves of this. Of course he approves of it. He invented it. It was his idea. God blesses the sexual intimacy enjoyed by a man and a woman within the bond of marriage. In his creation, God joined this sexual intimacy to the conception of children in the womb. It was good. It was very good. There's more to marriage than enjoying sexual intimacy and having babies. In the second chapter of Genesis, Moses zeroes in on man, who is the crown of his creation, and he gives us the history of the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, 
because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Genesis 2, 18 to 24. There's a line from the hymn, Praise the Almighty, that reminds one of what God made when he made marriage. We sing, hast thou not seen how thy desires all have been granted in what he ordaineth? To fulfill desires in what God has ordained is good. To fulfill desires in what God has not ordained is not good. Marriage is good. Sexual intimacy is good. It is good within what God has ordained. It is not good outside of what God has ordained. If a man and a woman fulfill their sexual desires within the bond of marriage, it is good. If they do so outside of that bond, it is bad. Many men and women live satisfied lives without marriage. The apostle writes, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Paul lived a celibate life. He did not enjoy the company of a wife. God gives the gift of contentment to many of his children without marriage. But most of us are not content without it. It is not good that man should be alone. A man needs a woman to help him. She must be meet or suitable for him. She is comparable to him, but is not the same as he. God does, and then he speaks. God created man and woman, then he blessed them. And what God did can be ascertained without reference to what God says about what he did. We can learn much about marriage from history, from, from nature, and by using common sense. Non-Christians can know some things about the ways of a man and the ways of a woman. I, I think what comes to my mind is that wonderful poem, which all of you should read, by Rudyard Kipling, The Female of the Species. Who knows, who knows that? You've got to learn it. You've got to read it. Because, well, it's a man's point of view anyway. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't invite Kip, well, he's dead, but I wouldn't have invited him to teach Sunday school in my church, but he had a lot of wisdom. There's a lot of wisdom out there that, that you don't have to be a Christian to, to share, but it's from the Bible that God teaches us that marriage is a divine institution, that he established it, and he defines it, and he blesses it. Marriage is not the end result of many years of evolution. And while it does have legal status among us, it is much more than a legal contract. And while God graciously sanctifies marriage and even likens it to the relationship between Christ and the church, marriage is not, as we heard in the sermon this morning, is not, strictly speaking, a sacrament, but it is a permanent relationship between a man and a woman as long as they live here on earth. There is no marriage in heaven. Let us consider briefly three purposes of marriage. Children, chastity, and charity. First, God blesses marriage with children. I thank God for the children he has given to me and my wife. I thank God for the children he has given to our children. God has blessed my wife and me with 12 children and 74 grandchildren. Children are the first blessing of marriage mentioned in the Bible. Second, God blesses marriage with chastity. He provides in marriage the joy of sexual intimacy from which he also blesses us with children. Now, people find the desire for this intimacy to be too strong for them to deny, 
so they are inclined to enjoy it with those to whom they're not married. Well, this is very common today as fornication is no longer regarded as a sin, even by people who define themselves as religious or spiritual. But no good ever comes from this. St. Paul addresses unfulfilled sexual desire quite directly with the words, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 9. Fornication is the result. Sexual intimacy is chaste within the marriage bond. It is a good gift. Fornication and adultery pervert this good gift. Homosexual acts pervert this good gift. Perverting sexual intimacy by severing it from marriage causes pain terrible pain and sorrow. Having babies without providing them with fathers and mothers is cruel. Debasing your body by engaging in unnatural sexual acts is to worship the creation rather than the creator. Virginity is good. Sexual intimacy within marriage is good. Chastity is, is good. <clears throat> by the way, I think it's a good thing for us to emphasize that Luther came to an understanding that has been well, biblical and is very helpful, that in his day, lots of folks identified chastity with virginity. And that's not the case. If you're not married, obviously remain a virgin. But chastity is also possible within marriage. And so the way I learned the sixth commandment was we should fear and love God that we may live a chaste, chaste and decent life in word and deed, and each love and honor his spouse. So why they threw out the word chaste? Well, I don't know. It's a good word. And, 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 and chastity and sexual intimacy belong together within the marriage bond. The third blessing of marriage is charity, love. Now, love is not a feeling. Love is doing. It is helping. <clears throat> God made for Adam a helper suitable for him. Eve was not created for Adam so that she could gaze at him and think to herself, he's so dreamy. <laughs> Love is doing. It is helping. Charity does. It isn't an inert feeling. The love with which a God tells a man to love his wife is likewise not simply an inner feeling. It is a doing. Just as Christ gave himself up for his church, though it cost him his life to do so, so a man is to love his wife. The love, in love, the wife submits to her husband in love, the husband saves his wife, that is, he helps her. He gives himself to her and for her. He serves her in imitation of him who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Charity is fashioned according to one's vocation. A man helps his wife by leading her a woman helps her husband by following him. Now what does it mean that the husband is the leader? <clears throat> I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. I just hope I can stay on key. This is a popular country western song. This isn't even on. Oh, I don't need a mic, do I? A popular country western song. They were right about the time we got married. <clears throat> See if anybody knows this. So put another log on the fire. Cook me up some bacon and some beans. Go out to the car and lift it up and change the tire. Wash my socks and sew my old blue jeans. Come on, baby, you can fill my pipe. And then go fetch my slippers and boil me up another pot of tea. 
Then put another log on the fire, babe, and come and tell me why you're leaving me. <laughs> now, so, how many of you had heard that song before? Yeah, I, I, that was a great song. Anyhow, the point is, God does not tell husbands to make their wives submit. It is put into the middle voice, and it's directed to the wife, not to the husband. The command given about submission isn't given to the husband, but to the wife. Here's how St. Paul teaches both submission and headship in words that I'm, I'm sure are familiar to you from Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Charity helps. The third purpose of marriage is help. The husband helps his wife by leading. The wife helps her husband by following. Christ is our head and we are his body. Christ sacrifices himself for us and we follow him not by learning rules to obey but by trusting in him to give himself for us and to us. Love leads to submission. Now Islam is submission in Arabic. Interesting, the Greek word shalom and the, and the Arabic word uh, Islam have the same root. How do the, how do the Hebrews translate it in, in the Old Testament? How do, we, how do we translate shalom into English? Peace. Peace, yeah. And the Muslims translate it submission. And, and their idea of submission is not our idea. Christian submission comes from the gospel. The Muslim has no confidence in God's grace. He has no word from God that ensures him of his salvation. So submission in Islam is not the submission of faith. The heart that believes is the heart that follows. And just so, as a Christian wife believes in Jesus, her Savior, she expresses her faith in Jesus, her Savior. She follows her Lord Jesus by submitting to her husband, as to the Lord, the text says. Not because he's a man, but because he is her man. As her man, he sacrifices himself for her, as did the true man who bore the sins and guilt of all mankind on, on Calvary. So the husband looks to Christ to see what he owes his wife. Let's talk about the key element of marriage, the forgiveness of sins. And we'll make this really simple catechetically, again, by using alliteration. Do you think alliteration it helps you remember, doesn't it? Everybody sits there, I don't know. What are you going to say? Okay, the, three, the, three, the forgiveness of sins is gained, given, gotten. Gained, given, gotten. It's gained by Christ's obedience and suffering. No deeds of ours can produce forgiveness. It had to be won by Christ's bitter suffering and death. It is given in the gospel and sacraments. God does not bestow forgiveness by making deals with us. He gives forgiveness freely in his gospel. It is gotten through faith. Faith in the forgiveness of sins is then expressed by forgiving those who sin against us. 
How many petitions are there in the Lord's Prayer? Seven. seven. In how many of those seven petitions do we promise to do anything? One. One. And what do we promise to do? Forgive those who sin against us. It's not the Lutherans who place the forgiveness of sins at the heart of the biblical doctrine. It is the Lord Jesus who put it there when he taught us how to pray. Forgiving your husband, forgiving your wife, forgiving without demanding the payment that Christ has already paid. Forgiving not on the condition of obedience to the law. Forgiving from the heart as we have been forgiven is the foundation for a happy marriage. <clears throat> and some marriages are not happy. I know. I've seen the misery that plagues marriage. And usually when a couple is facing marital trouble, they don't go to the pastor. No, they go to some counselor who doesn't know the first thing about sin and forgiveness. Well, Sometimes the couple decides to visit their pastor instead. And when the Christian couple comes to their pastor for counsel because of conflicts in their marriage, each of them usually has a list of the other's failings. Now the pastor may be inclined to counsel each of them to take the other's criticisms to heart and try to meet the spouse's expectations. Each should try to meet the other's demands. Sound fair? No, it sounds stupid. Because fair isn't the point. Children quarrel over what's fair and what's not. It is God's word, not the husband or wife's sense of fairness, that teaches us how to live within marriage. Neither the husband nor the wife knows better than God what the other ought to be doing. What does God's word say? That the husband and wife should want their spouse to do what they feel they should do? They should rather do what God tells them to do. God knows how to make a happy marriage. Children, chastity, and charity. Charity. Not companionship. A dog can be a good companion. Charity. Not partnership. Marriage is more than a business or legal contract. It's life. We need help in our life. Now parents can help. Children and friends can help. But a wife or a husband is more than a companion a partner, a teacher, or a friend. God took the woman out of the man. She is part of him. She is his body. He lives through her, just as the life of Christ is the life of his church. Now let's talk some more about children. First, let's talk about infertility. Sometimes a couple gets married and they learn they cannot have children. And that's a cross. It's one thing to discern the will of God in general. It's another to discern his will in the particular. God blesses marriage with children. This we know. God says so. It's his will. Well, why then does God withhold this blessing from some? God knows. We don't. This belongs to the hidden will of God that we cannot know. When facing God's hidden will, we face sorrow, frustration, and at times doubt. What can we do when we're deprived of God's good gifts? We look to the gift of the Lord Jesus, who lived and died for us. We look to the grace of God in Christ. We claim the forgiveness of sins purchased by his blood and from that treasure, we learn that God's will for us is good and gracious, even when he does not give us blessings for which we pray. When my wife was a girl, she was particularly struck by the story about Hannah, 
who prayed that God would give her a child. God heard her prayer and she named the boy Samuel. My wife followed Hannah's example and she prayed to God for children and God heard her prayer. The gift of children is joined to the gifts of chastity and charity. Now, if children are not blessings from God, and if we may engage in sexual intercourse outside of marriage, sexual intimacy is selfish and destructive. Selfishness is seen as men and women regard children as a threat rather than as a blessing of sexual intimacy. Rather than the fulfillment of sexual intimacy, children are seen as potential dangers to sexual fulfillment. When sexual intimacy is torn away from God's institution of marriage, it is changed from being a sign of the unity of the husband and wife and an expression of the charity that is unique to marriage into self-serving pleasure for its own sake. What God created as a seal of marital love and as a means of new life is now nothing more than self-indulgence. To engage in sexual intimacy outside of marriage is to turn what is pure into what is impure. Fornication is an attack on marriage whether or not those engaged in this sin love each other. If they're not married to each other, it is, by definition, fornication. Children are blessings from God. We read in Psalm 127, 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. And again we read in Psalm 128, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. God blesses his children with children and children's children. It is his prerogative to do so, because he is the author of life. Now, many Christians today believe that it is up to responsible couples to plan if and when to have children. And this introduces the category of unplanned pregnancies. There is no such thing. Family planning is in God's hands, not ours. And that people don't want God's blessings does not mean that God's blessings are not blessings. Most people don't want to eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus given and shed for them for the forgiveness of sins. They would rather enjoy their sin than rejoice in the forgiveness that God gives to those who are penitent and who trust in the blood of Jesus. That man does not value the body and blood of Jesus and the salvation they bring to us does not negate the gospel. And that men and women would rather buy stuff they don't need than to embrace new life bestowed by our loving Heavenly Father does not mean that money is more valuable than life. All the money in the world cannot bring you true wealth. To value the life that God gives is to find joy in this life. A former parishioner uh, whom God had blessed with seven children, she attended, this has nothing to do with my talk, but 
I was uh, visiting with it when they moved up to, uh, to Racine. And they moved up from Highland Park, Illinois. I said, I've heard of Highland Park. My dad was confirmed at Highland Park. Find out this, this uh, family who had been members of the same congregation at which my dad was confirmed. Small world. Well, God had blessed them with seven children. And uh, I remember her telling me something that I'll never forget. She said that children are the only gift that God gives you here on earth that you can take to heaven with you. And as, as you grow older and your children have children of their own, you learn what a joy it was when your children were children. You don't entirely forget the sleepless nights worrying about them, their health, their conduct, and their future. But these hard times do not define fatherhood and motherhood. Raising children is a rich life. It humbles you. It rewards you. It blesses you. It brings you joy. And it comforts you in your old age. She was right. Children are the only gift God gives us here on earth that we can take to heaven with us. We say that we're pro-life. We oppose abortion. God is the creator of life. God put the baby in the womb. And that pre-born baby gets his value not from being wanted by men, but by being created and redeemed by God. Is it not strange to do everything possible to prevent the sperm from penetrating the egg, and then when we fail in our attempt, and a child is conceived, we piously assert that this child is a gift from God. God plans, God gives, God blesses, God loves the little children, and he loves us, and that's why he gives us children. God loves children. That's why he hates divorce. Divorce is bad for children. Through the prophet Malachi, God said, the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. Divorce is bad for children. God wants godly offspring. He wants fathers and mothers to love each other and to remain faithful to each other. And their mutual faithfulness is not just for their own benefit. It is for the benefit of their children. Children whose parents divorce are more likely to fall away from the faith. The greatest loss of divorce is not the personal law sense of loss, betrayal, guilt, or anger of fathers and mothers. No, it is the corruption of the authority of father and mother. The sixth and the fourth commandments depend on each other. Divorce is a sin against the sixth commandment that undermines the fourth commandment as well. Our Lord Jesus condemns divorce. We read in Matthew 19, the Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever <clears throat> divorces his wife except 
for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. <clears throat> Matthew 19, 3 to 9. Now, if two people make a business deal and then both decide to undo the deal, there is no sin as long as it's mutual. But marriage is not a deal between a man and a woman. Marriage is made by God. What God has joined together, Jesus says, let not man separate. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman. That's how God made it. And that divorce is common doesn't make it right. I remember back when I was in high school, my pastor, are there any St. Louis grads here? Did you have Richard Warnick? He was my pastor back when St. John's in Ellisville was a Lutheran congregation. But he, he went to the seminary right after the walkout. With, and, and, uh, but he, he, I remember saying, he, he was uh, saying how they'll clobber you if you go after divorce. This was like, I graduated from high school in 71, so this had to have been 1970, 71, where pastors were afraid to preach against divorce because people get ticked off. And I have had the children of people who are divorced go after me for preaching against divorce. Well, anyway. Uh, that divorce is common doesn't make it right. Divorce is the fruit of selfishness. God wants me to be happy. I am not happy with him or her, so I have the right to divorce. The marriage was a mistake. I'm correcting a mistake. Pastor, God wants me to be happy. This guy he does nothing. He doesn't cheat on her. He, he watches TV, he drinks beer, he goes to bed. He never takes her out dancing or out to a show or anywhere. She can't stand it. God wants me to be happy. So she divorced him. Now all these rationalizations, oh, the marriage was a mistake. I'm correcting a mistake. And all, all of these rationalizations for divorce must be answered by the words of Jesus. They are one flesh. God joined them together. Now here I want to make an important point because sometimes this is forgotten. God permits divorce in the case of sexual unfaithfulness. And he does so precisely because they're one flesh. For a husband or wife to become one flesh with another man or woman is to break the marriage. And it is not right to require that a husband or wife remain married to someone who has broken that marriage by adultery. Now, I've seen and rejoiced in reconciliation between a husband and a wife where one of them was sexually unfaithful to the other. So divorce is by no means required in response to adultery. But neither can it be forbidden. Our Lord clearly grants the right to divorce the unfaithful spouse. The church has failed <clears throat> to speak God's word on this subject. St. Paul says that if the unbeliever departs, the Christian is not bound. And so from that, we come up with malicious desertion as grounds for divorce. Well, now then, malicious desertion becomes emotional desertion. And so it goes. Pastors get divorced, and they continue to serve in the ministry of the word. We can't honor marriage unless we take our stand on the word of God and condemn divorce. And if it angers people or makes people feel guilty, so be it. There are more important things to care about than people's feelings. Marriage is not about feeling. It's far, far greater than what we feel. It is an institution of God. It is the bedrock of the home. It secures godly offspring. And that will be the topic of our final session tomorrow. So I think, uh, I think we've got a few minutes if you, if you have some. Yes, ma'am.
I, I don't think that uh, those are the only options. Uh, another option, <laughs> well, I'll tell you a story. This, this is when my dad was a pastor. This was a long time ago. And this guy, he had a drinking problem. And he would drink, and then he'd beat up his wife. And then the next day, he'd be so, so, so sorry. Well, one day, after doing that, he got up. His wife snuck up behind him with a, with a frying pan. Wham! Smacked it on his head. Oh! And, and, and he said, what did you do that for? And she said, well, you, you beat me up. Every time you do that, this is going to happen to you. He did it one more time. And she said to him the following morning, she says, I owe you. And all day long, he's just on pins and needles waiting for the... <laughs> Sooner or later, later on in the day, wham! Now, I don't know. Dad said that worked. <laughs> so, uh, or, or the example of a, of a member of ours in Racine uh, who did not live with her husband. Uh, he, he was also an alcoholic. I don't know about violence. Alcoholics, sometimes they just, you know, they just sleep and sometimes they get mean. And uh, she couldn't tolerate it. And so she wouldn't live with him because of the way he was treating her. And then when he got old and got, and got ter terminally ill, she was at the hospital by his side. I mean, she was a remarkable woman. But she said, no, you aren't going to do that to me. Now, I don't think a woman uh, should uh, uh, put herself in, in danger and, and get beat up. But, but uh, uh, I think there are other options than divorce in, in a case of a, of a man who's, who's abusive. Another would be, uh, I had a, I want to make it personal, I'll just say a guy I knew had a sister who claimed her husband beat up on her and she had five brothers. Well, for crying out loud, why do you divorce them? Tell your five brothers. Let them have a brotherly meeting with this guy. <laughs> But you know, they say that women who are abused are often ashamed of it and they don't want to tell others. I can see that, but then why divorce? That's about as public a thing as, you know. Yeah, was there another? Or somebody's just adjusting something. Any, any other comments or questions? Oh, <laughs> uh, isn't your spouse a gift? Yes, yes. Uh, I guess she kind of took for granted that. But uh, I don't know. Kids, kids, you know what the great thing about kids is? They, te they, they destroy our, our idolatrous impulses because you have something, some object that you treasure, you know, and you just love it a little bit too much. So God sends you children to break them. <laughs> and it's, it's like he's doing you a favor by destroying your idols. Yeah. And then, and then uh, but then also, I, I, the, the blessing of children is, is not just, when, if you are young, let's say you're in your 30s, 40s, and you got a whole bunch of kids and a lot of little kids and your life is just so hectic and you never get the work done and and you often think you often think oh man this is rough let me tell you you are happy you really are you just don't know it but these these are we know it because we remember those days and when we remember those days we don't remember the poop and the vomit and the getting sick and the teacher calling and saying, uh, uh, we don't remember all that junk. Oh, she does. <laughs> oh, great. Well, we, we were at, 
Yeah, you know, what if I, we were talking about submission a little earlier. I'm not sure how that applies to this. <laughs> we were just down in Vinton, Iowa, and our, our son, Stephen, and his wife, Margaret, well, they have four kids. So one day their son, John, threw up. The next day their son, Christopher, threw up. The next day Stephen threw up. And the next day my wife threw up. And the next day I came up here to speak, and I, I'm feeling much better now. I, I didn't throw up. But I was just, I was just, when Christopher threw up on the dog, <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, I just love children. I sure am glad it's not my responsibility. I mean, <laughs> to have to clean vomit off a dog. I mean, that's just, off <laughs> duh. Yeah. Is there a reason you chose the translation to submit as opposed to subordinate, since submission can be forced upon someone? But oh, interesting. I, I never gave it a thought. I, 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 I use the New King James. That's just the Bible I generally use unless I want to make a specific point. Um, yeah, I just interpret submit according to a, willing, a willingness and, and just try to, to interpret it in light of the gospel and God's grace and so forth. Uh, and I've never even considered that the word subordinate would, would uh, be less coercive than submit. When I think of subordinate, I think of the military, you know. But anyway, no, there, there's really nothing to it. I just chose the, King, the new King James. Yeah. Well, I'd say two things. Number one, when, when a friend of mine once said to me, you decided to have a lot of kids, I just interrupted him and said, no, I did not. I never decided to have any kids at all, period. And that's the truth. All I want to do is get married to this beautiful young lady and have her as my wife. And honestly, I wasn't even thinking about babies. <laughs> So God is the one who did it. And the second is my children and their children are going to be paying into Social Security so that you all can retire and get some income when you're old. And if it weren't for their existence, the Social Security system would go. I mean, look at Europe. Yeah, OK, half the kids opted out, right. You know, first my wife, then my son. You can see I've totally lost any kind of control. <laughs> Patriarchy is obviously a dead letter. It means nothing. So, so it, I had people ask those stupid questions when, when I started having five, six children. Now that I have ten children, you know, like when it started with the eighth child, people stopped asking questions. Stop saying comments. You know, when I, I got to tell you a story, and then I said, oh, no, we still have a couple minutes. Uh, we had nine boys in a row, and then we had our first girl. So in Bible class, right after Mary was born, this one lady, she's kind of obnoxious, like rude. And so she said, so pastor, are you going to stop now? And so I said, stop doing what? <laughs> and she turned beet red. <laughs> Never got any of those impertinent questions after that. <laughs> yeah. No, but honest to, to, to be, I know, uh, I, I, I agree, Mom. I call her mom when I'm around the kids. I call her grandma around the grandchildren, and I call her sweetie when it's just the two of us. And she remembers these things, but I, but I got to tell you, the joy of life, 
the most rich and rewarding thing of life is raising children. And, and, and the benefit when you get older is that, is that you can carry on an intelligent theological conversation with your, your, your children. Not just my sons, my daughter too. And to have that kind of a relationship uh, uh, is just, I can't put into words what a great blessing it is. And then you see them raise their kids and you see how God provides. And you know what's gonna happen. Inflation's gonna go through the roof, we're gonna lose all our money, and, and then we're gonna get into some terrible recession, depression, and then, you know, the economy's gonna fall apart. All these terrible things are gonna happen, right? We're all sitting there worried about it, and said, but, but we, have our, we have our God, we have our family, we have our children, and they have the most precious thing, the one thing needful. The most precious thing in the world you can give your kids is the Word of God. And we're going to be talking about that tomorrow uh, morning. Okay? Thanks. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour. <laughs>